Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. Okay. Oh, welcome to the Building Science. To the Building Science Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, hello. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. This is Christoph Irwin with Positive Energy here, as always, with my friend, sidekick, and business partner, Miguel. I'm the man with the headphones. You are. He is looking sharp in those headphones. <laughs> I'm also here with another close friend, Trey Farmer, close friend, colleague, hey guys. Uh, co-conspirator in the local passive house world. And we are here today to talk about his house. But because this is the Building Science Podcast, we come at things with the systems perspective. And this man, Trey Farmer, and his uh, wife, Adrian and his son, Heron, are living in a passive house that they just built here in Austin, Texas. It's a remodel of an existing house. And it is a rich case study uh, at different levels, right? So like one of, the, one of the first levels is they built a house. So they had to go through that whole process. We're gonna hear about that. Another thing is they didn't build a normal house, quote unquote normal, they built a <laughs> passive house, a better house. And that connects to the industry and the society and you know, the rules, like codes. Uh, and then they've had some time to live in it through snowpocalypse. Um, and we'll just start there, we'll just start there. Yeah, the role of architecture in society is lurking here. The role of architects in society is, mm-hmm. is nearby. So welcome, Trey. Um, I didn't introduce you, please introduce yourself. Uh, I'm Trey Farmer of the <laughs> Forgecraft Architecture and Design. Um, yeah, like you said, uh, on the Passive House board with you guys, and uh, definitely, you know, love our little building science community here in Austin and, and more broadly. And um, yeah, so we had we, you know, lived in this house. Uh, is it 1914 Craftsman? 1914. Yeah, it'd be like two miles from here, just across the lake. <laughs> I'll start that over. Nice dog hack there. <laughs> I'll leave the dog hack in. We're that, this with our Labradors. Okay, so yeah. 1914 house. We have our emotional support animals right here. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, just across the just across the river from us, about two miles away, uh, and we lived in it for about eight years, and you know, spent a lot of that time kind of noodling around and you know, plotting and scheming, and and finally had the opportunity to do something and wanted to to go big with it, and you know, it's about 500 yards from uh, a freeway and a freight train line, so there's definitely some, you know, outdoor air quality concerns that we had, and we were... Acoustic um, impacts. Yeah, acoustic impacts, definitely acoustic impacts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you could hear those uh, old single-pane windows rattle yeah. every time the train went by. Um, and uh, we were starting a family, you know, so that was a big big thing was like, you know, old leaky house, like uh, squeaky floorboards that could kind of pinch little baby fingers. And, <laughs> Uh, yeah. And you know, and then uh, so Adrian is uh, has an interior design firm, Studio Ferrum, and she specializes in sort of healthy, uh, like wellness focused, mindful materials and, and interiors and spaces. And uh, and then Forgecraft, we you know focus on similar things and, and high performance building. And uh, you know, we didn't have many case studies for passive houses down here, and really wanted to push the needle with that. Um, so we went for it. You know, got a, a good builder on board who was a friend, worked with you guys on our mechanicals and so much more. Um, you know, I think it was it was fun. It was like definitely a 
a journey, is a big learning uh, process for us and for yeah. everyone involved, but also like created a lot of community around it. We had, you know, maybe four or five kind of like happy hour presentations during design and then maybe a dozen during construction where we opened up the house and had various vendors and friends come in and talk about their portion of the building and um, have UT researchers looking at it now that it's in operation, looking at passive survivability and indoor air quality. Uh, we've got, we're going to be on the AIA Homes Tour in a couple of weeks, uh, you know, trying to open it up as publicly as we can and share what worked and what didn't work, what we do differently. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. All right, yeah, so as I uh, said to you all at the introduction here, there's a lot of dimensions we can take us. So why don't we start unpacking it? Why don't we start with, the, mm -hmm. like at the very beginning, I guess, you said you lived in the house for eight years, you started to plan a family. Um, a lot of people could be daunted about this dual role of like, designing and building a house while they're thinking of starting a family. I mean, I guess you were, the house was first, or? It was, yeah, I mean, it was kind of all, maybe smarter people would be daunted by that. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, uh, I don't know, I mean, it's like we're both in the industry and, you know, kind of starting out our careers to a certain extent, you know, as, um, pretty soon after grad school, I'd worked as an architect prior to grad school um, right. in, uh, in Berkeley, Oakland, Bay Area. Ah. Um, but, you know, yeah, we, I mean, a big part of the impetus for wanting to do the work was to support our family, right? Like, we expanded the footprint by about 50%. It was 1,400 square feet. It went to 2,100. Um, but also just, like, wanted to have a fresh start, you know. It mm -hmm. was, you know, it was a cute house, but not in great shape. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I live yeah. in a 1919 bungalow, and there is something about even, like, honoring the work and the materials that mm -hmm. went into it that is involved yeah. because if you don't they are literally rotting away yeah right if you have yeah. we have poor we had poor drainage issue on site and the crawl space was always wet and so yeah there's something about that so actually i don't want to go backwards too much but i want to give people a sense of you just briefly so you just mentioned bay area oakland berkeley you were an architect there and prior to that you were a uh, construction you're a carpenter in New England I, I actually here I um, here. are so I moved here for grad school and reached out to some local architects as you know sort of green architects and uh, talked to our friend Peter Pfeiffer who uh, had me over for lunch and sat me down and was like you know honestly I think you should go work for a builder for a year you know wow. you want to be an architect you're going to architecture school like go work for a good builder, he gave me the name of a couple of builders, so I went and worked for Pilgrim Enabler, who are oh, also friends of ours. Nice. Yeah, doing, uh, you know, laying a lot of floor protection and then doing, you know, doing flooring installs <laughs> after I kind of cut my teeth on on that and uh, tr some trim work and, you know, it was, those guys are, you know, incredible and so I was just scratching the surface of the stuff they can do. But, yeah. uh, it was it was really cool, and I got to learn my way around town, sort of know which architects they were working with, see some really neat projects. Uh, my first project was that nine and a half street project, which I know you guys worked on, oh, yeah. um, doing those pecan floors. And wow! So you were on the construction team for that. Yeah, is this just for some background? Is this a I don't know eighteen 
well, you know, one of the oldest houses in Austin. Austin's not a very old city. Um, you know, there's a lot of like 1920s, you know, historic homes. This was like way before that, you know, stacked limestone. So it was really interesting mix where there was some of the natural building crews from town were there doing restorative plaster work. And then there were, we were there doing the finished carpentry and the GC work and you guys were doing the MEP. Yeah, it was one of our first designs and it yeah. I think got started with just a casual comment about standard equipment being the uh, pinnacle of a regressive technology. And that caught Branson's ear and the owner's ear and like, yeah. oh, what would you do then? And I'm like, well, I would do VRF. They're like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, it's a page on the menu you don't hear about. <laughs> yeah. Wow, so you were, yeah, it's for the small world. Okay, I don't want to make this too Austin mm-hmm. specific, so let's, I'm going to bring you back now. So you and Adrian decide you're going to do this thing. You partnered with a local architect as a design architect? So, so yeah, we uh, worked with Hugh Jefferson Randolph, who um, I had worked for during grad school, um, okay. and he's, you know, we first heard of him because one of our friends was building another house that um, you, I think you all worked on over on Palma Plaza mm-hmm. with uh, Matt Reisinger built, Matt, okay. um, which is just around the corner from ours, and he's loved it. And, and so then I reached out to Hugh and did an internship with him and uh, loved working with him and knew that he did some sort of like collaborative work on projects occasionally. And also like his, um, you know, one of the things he does really well is sort of historic preservation projects with kind of like fun new contemporary edition, uh, uh, you know, or updates. And yeah. so it kind of it fit really well with like what we needed and what we wanted. And we mm-hmm. needed, you know, we needed a, a tiebreaker and a fresh air. And, it, you know, we, um, as we went into this, we knew like if we we're going to build a passive house, it, it had to look good, right? Like we wanted this to be a thing that like was on the homes tour that, Austin design community respected and like really wanted to to see and then it was passive house like you know they're already in the door and it's like oh by the way it's got incredible indoor air quality and it's like super durable and it's really good in power outages and it doesn't use any energy but after people were already hooked and so that was you know I think a big part of uh bringing Hugh to the table too is like some of his magic in the design So the artistry and the uh, actual functional outcomes, you wanted both. Yeah, and, and he, you know, we... Wanted it all. We did, we wanted, we wanted it all, right? I mean, we, you know, it's like not every day that, uh, you know, a designer gets to design their own house, so... Um, so pretty linear process through the design. Um, and Adrian were pretty decisive and... Pretty <laughs> all, the all, the, all the way through, every, everything we were in a perfect agreement on, yeah. <laughs> No, no, we, I mean, we, we had broadly lots of agreement, but, uh, it's never linear. It's kind of linear in like, I don't know how to, how to show that on podcast, but if you imagine like scr- scribbling a bunch of squiggles <laughs> that, that eventually go from one place to another, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's linear and then it goes from A to B, but the, it's not a straight line. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. So we, we worked with you. We would like th- go in and sketch with, with him and uh, Blair at his office and at like, you know, lunch for an hour or two and trade ideas and then we'd have the the model and run with it for a few weeks and then he would run with it for a few weeks and uh kind of like work through sort of like midway through dd you worked in revit we we were working so our office works in archicad i had decent revit skills from grad school so we were working in revit with them and then once we took it um 
you know, during CI, I ended up like switching it over to ArchiCAD because at that point I was just like, I, you know, my skills are better in ArchiCAD. But is that a full rewrite or was it? Did I just yeah, file transfer. Just read. I mean, I redrew it. I didn't have to redo the drawings. I just remodeled things, and then so so I have like an ArchiCAD model that has like very uh, finely tuned detailing around like the sink and the cabinetry and the countertops mm -hmm. and things like that, and then like totally blank in other portions of the house. Right. Um, okay. But the construction documents were all out of Revit. Okay, so you're in the design phase now, I'm trying to stay like kind of logical, <laughs> moving us through this. So also in the design phase, since you wanted to do a passive house for many good reasons that you mentioned, mm -hmm. um, durability, energy, air quality being high on the list, now you get to exercise your certified passive house consultant skills, which I guess you already had been a CPHC. Mm -hmm. um, and you get to work, you guys were, if I remember right, you were trying to hit the 2018 standards and you were like in the like a beginning phases of that yeah that, so we were like a, pi a pilot project exactly for the 2018 standard um and yeah we did we did our cphc training together actually that was while i was in school our friend keith simon was like hey do you want to come come do this thing right. yeah, and, and, and yeah we organized the training you organized it you guys John cooked Samuel us lunch and, and yeah yeah john samak was what our a small trainer. So, so those of you listening so probably just like in your uh, locale right austin everyone knows everyone else and they know these histories and yeah i didn't realize you were in grad school then though interesting yeah i was able to get course credit for that actually yeah so we minted a lot of cphcs and uh you were probably one of the first exercising their uh, credential yeah, yeah, here, here in town for sure. Um, so yeah, so I, I basically like... And that was what, 2011, 2012? No. Later than that, maybe like 2015? 2015. 2015. Maybe, 2014. Okay. But, I know because we actually did another one. No, no, my first PS conference was 2011. Okay. So yeah, 2015, that was one of the first ones. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, we... Uh, yeah, so we were one of the pilot projects and we... Yeah. You know, Any like, comments on hitting those targets? Or yeah, I mean, it was, it was an interesting process, you know, going back and forth. And um, I think that's maybe like one of the biggest value adds that I tell people about certifying is like how it's like $1,500 to actually certify the project. And you get so much quality feedback from the FIAS people. Yeah. You know, it's incredible. Like it's many, many rounds and we've done like Zoom calls with them and they really help with the, the modeling, you know, the software, Woofy, Passive, um, and helping us model it, but also with like the building science and, and sort of the cost optimization of the whole thing. Um, and then especially because we're sort of a new market down here, the kind of like tweaking of the targets. And so we... That's a little bit of an understatement, sort of a new market. But <laughs> yeah, right, okay. Yeah, so our house was the third passive house in Texas, and there's like one or two in the whole South maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, and then our friend across town was building. He was the second, you know, at the same time as us. So it was, it was kind of the second uh, <laughs> as well, right? Um, so photo finish there. Yeah, well, he he definitely finished first, but just like there, we were we didn't have a lot of precedent before, right? There's not there's not a big market, you know. Mm -hmm. There aren't there aren't like three architecture firms in town who've got twenty of these under our belt. Like if you were to build in Portland or Seattle or Philly, right? Yeah. Um, and the targets, right? This right, the targets aren't as well. Climate. Yeah. So, so yeah. So we we talked a lot with Fias about it, and are still talking with them about it. You know, we've got a couple projects now that are under construction, and a couple more in design, and and there's more 
other people in Texas now designing, and so there's a very active conversation around the targets and sort of what is kind of appropriate for our climate in terms of like how far up that sort of diminishing returns curve makes sense for the first cost. You know, we have such good sun down here, so solar is really effective. You know, our uh, design temperature deltas are not that high because, you know, like a, even 110 degrees is not that far from 70 when you right. compare it to, you know, 40 or 30 or 20 or, mm, you negative know. Negative 20. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and it turns the whole, the fundamental concept of investing in the enclosure makes more and more sense when it can obviate the need for your heating system mm -hmm. because you're heating a house, our two Labradors here are heating the room. Right. Here we are in a climate where none of you are offering free cooling or dehumidification. Right. So it really is like from a deep paradigm perspective, it's a, it's a shift. And actually that brings up, I don't know if it's a taboo topic, it's a sensitive topic, the FIAS and PHI split, right? Um, yeah. Did you, I guess at the time, there was no point in looking at PHI. It really had no presence here at all. They, Whereas so, Katrin had come down. Yeah, like I had you know, met Katrin. She'd come and sp and, uh, spoke down here. And uh, and then I'd done the CPHC training through FIAS. And, and FIAS had their climate-specific mm -hmm. you know, targets, right? Yeah, so that was sort of, we were just starting to get going when they launched those. Whereas PHI now it seems like is moving that way, but that, that back then they weren't, you know, even in the conversation. We, there was uh, a group that did a passive house in Dallas with PHI, and that was looking at that compared to like what our targets were showing us made it seem pretty obvious that we should be working with FIAS just because they were building a house that was looked like a passive house in, in New Hampshire. We actually did an interview with them that uh, you guys can go back and listen to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're on microphone, too. I'm distant. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, there's a podcast. Uh, we, we interviewed those guys in Dallas, gosh. Years ago. Right after they built it. Yeah. Okay, so no good building science podcast would be complete without talking about the enclosure and mm. the tyranny of enclosurism. Um, <laughs> so you had this existing home. Mm-hmm. That challenge, that's a challenge to work with. How, let's just start with that. So the, on the remodeled areas of the house where you have an existing wall and need to replace it with a new wall, what did you do? I, I use the analogy of like peeling away a rotten onion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like we, we thought we were going to keep a lot more of the original structure than we ended up keeping. Yeah. You know, it was all... It's balloon frame, there were no headers, no jack studs, Whoa. a lot of termite damage. You know, hmm. we had like triple windows with no, it was just like two by four, single two by four around them. Um, it, you know, we thought, but by the, between the structural engineer and our framer and, and sort of like current code, it was just, there was no way to keep the current, the mm -hmm. existing structure. Um, so we sort of peeled it away and peeled it away and kept getting told we had to peel the next layer away and uh, eventually just had sort of the floor uh, floor framing which yep. was then two, uh, two inches out of level the, yeah. the door was still standing up I right. the front door I was about to it's go. hard and like I but we saved a lot of the wood too yes we saved a lot of the wood we pulled the nails uh, a lot of it went out to um, this uh, community first village which mm -hmm. is a, a 
a place like built where they have a number of sort of small um, like micro homes for uh, formerly homeless people um, to support them. And so a lot of the wood went out to a couple of those homes. We reused some in our own house. Some of them went to friends who were Excellent. doing working on their house. But but from a yeah, it's tricky from like a historic preservation standpoint. And then even like we you know there's a lot of talk around like embodied carbon and like the greenest house you can build is the one that's already built. And so it's like. I don't know, maybe that's true in like bigger brick buildings, but in stick built 100 year old houses in Austin. Right, because we heavily termite damaged and water damaged. Yeah. Yeah. How are you going to make that airtight? Right. We're, Even, yeah, we're working on a passive house right now across town that uh, has an existing bungalow in the front, and it was the same thing. Like, we tried to keep as much of it as we could, and it, now they've just reframed the whole floor assembly, and we're keeping the roof, and it's kind of like. Was it worth it keeping the existing <laughs> two by four roof? Because they're going to have to come back in and sister two by tens up there just to, to code. And it feels so much better now, though, that it's got like new proper wood that's not yep. hasn't been falling down a hill for a yeah. hundred years slowly. <laughs> so. Uh, so your house, you you ended up with a pier and beam foundation. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we matched the old pier and beam. Fresh start framing it on up and used some of the old wood when you could. Mm-hmm. Well, um, we ended up. They let us thicken up our walls, yeah. you know, so okay, we so were, walls? Yeah. so, so now we have two by six walls. They were two by four. Um, that was a quick decision when it was like the framers were already starting to like rebuild the walls. It's like, well, no, no, no. If we turn them down, we need to, uh, go to two by six, get a little more insulation and then we can back off our continuous a little bit. Um, so two by six walls with, uh, rock wool bats. And then we have the zip R six sheathing. So we had, we were about 10 feet into setbacks about seven feet on one side and two and a half feet on the other side. So like we talked with the city and they're like, you can't do continuous insulation because oh, wow. it'll make you more non-complying right. than Encourage. you already were. And so the zip was kind of like, well, we're just adding an inch and nobody can see it because it's behind the sheathing. And like, they can't tell us we can't put up sheathing because that's ridiculous. <laughs> so like, <laughs> you know, you just run into all these kind of like silly mm-hmm. rules and bureaucracy at all these different turns. And so it's, uh, yeah. I mean, it's part of the fun, you know, I mean, it's frustrating when you're doing a, it. There's a life safety issue here. They don't want combustible materials too close to each other. So right. It's not just silly, and yet mm. there are aspects of it. Like, it's an inch. It's literally, it's literally an, an inch, inch, right. And, and that, that wall was already, um, had to be uh, uh, one hour rated from both sides because it was within the five foot setback. Right. So we're already rating it. So, to, you know, but yeah, is it, is, it, is it one inch or where are you measuring to? Are you measuring to like your, the sill? you know, below your window or the, the trim or mm. the posts or the actual sheathing or the, you know, if you do a rain screen, does yeah. that extra half inch count? Um, so there's all this kind of funny zoning. So did you put anything over the zip? Um, we do not, yes, our house is not just zip on the outside anymore. It's, um, we have a- uh, Well, no, of course not. <laughs> I mean, of course there's cladding, but I yeah, think no. there's control layer. No, so the zip is the control layer. Uh, yeah, so we seams. so we were able to tape the seams, um, and then we used the zip roofing, and, and uh, which was really nice. We got this really clean uh, air and water control layer running right from the wall to the, up to the roof. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so then we have a rain screen with uh, hardy siding that we were to match the existing profile. What'd you make the rain screen with? Um, just furring strips. Okay. Oh, so the furring strips are, are so three quarter inch. Yeah, three quarter. So you encroached even more. You could have gone those three eighths inch, court, you know, signboard stock. Um, yeah, you know. Okay. So <laughs> you just have one inch of CI, and then rock wool bats and a two by six wall. So mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't seem like gold plated. All it's not crazy, lot, right? I mean, it's it's a, uh, more than double code here, right? So we're 
about R30 with that, um, whereas code is R13. So it's, right. it's, it's so it doesn't seem, it's, it's not excessive, right? But it's also like significantly more than what, what is required mm -hmm. as, as bare minimum. Um, and I think that was one of the big learning experiences is like, I mean, what we, we tried to use sort of ubiquitous materials in our market, right? So we see a lot of zip around, even on sort of high-end spec homes and like a lot of customs. Um, so, so we didn't want to do, I love like Vapro Shield and Polywall and some of those, but they're just not, they don't have sort of market penetration and we didn't want to do anything weird because we wanted to show that this was not that big of a lift. around weird. Yeah, right? <laughs> yes, thank you. Uh, but, Progressive. Yeah, yeah just, or just different, right? Like, like right, we so wanted I to be it. like, this you is a thing that you can do. To, to, we wanted to, to tell people that they could do this and it was going to be not too too difficult. Just requires some forethought, some modeling, mm. a little bit better detailing. and. So the roof? Assembly there? And the so uh, it's just slightly above code roof. So um, we've got two by 12 rafters that are basically full up of rock wool. Um, and so we so did- So that's netted? It's the bats, so they were, they form fit pretty oh, well and get tight, so we don't have to net them. Yeah, it ha essentially like they put strapping under them, but like none of it's falling out. Mm -hmm. the, those bats are pretty pretty nice. And the air control air is exterior to all of that, mm -hmm. of course. Yeah, and we did so like per code, you need to have an air control air under a bat insulation and a roof. But we ran some uh, hydrothermal analysis with you guys and Keith, yeah, and yeah. we're able to kind of prove out that in our climate and with a dehumidifier inside the house, it was not gonna be an issue of moisture buildup at the roof line. Excellent, yeah. Never underestimate the power of a large dry air mass inside a home right. <laughs> to keep it dry, but people do. Yeah, we yeah, don't yeah. curate the air very, very thoughtfully. Okay, so you had a fairly, what you, R30 roof, you said R38 roof? Um, it's like R42, yeah. R38's code here. It's just slightly above that. So slightly above code for both roof and walls. Mm -hmm. Well, or, walls are about, or more than double. Right. So it's, it's, what I, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. But not gold-plated. So in right. either area, that should be mm -hmm. yeah, so For right. sure. And that basically worked with the FIAS targets? Any thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, it was... We, you know, we kind of went, went I around. guess floor insulation too? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that so a combination it, of pure and beam and slab? Or all it's pure? all pure and beam. We've got our... Uh, 13, I think, uh, closed cell spray foam under there. You know, we, we that was another one where we reached out to the community and were like, how do we air seal uh, our, our crawl yeah, space? There's and a time for spray foam. Yeah, and there's a time for spray foam. And, you know, we, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we, uh, where were we? Well, actually, I'm, <laughs> you just cracked me up thinking about, well, yeah, the exterior of my house is, is green zip. But I remember there was a time, maybe it's even still happening, where you'd go see spec homes, particularly in East Austin, when it was uh, rapidly, you know, unfortunately, gentrifying. And they would call it Texas Dance Hall. You had Texas Dance Hall flooring. Mm. I remember going into one of those, you know, reading the brochure, oh, what's he doing? They had just sanded and urethaned the decking, right? Just <laughs> the regular subfloor. Yeah. Well, I, think, I think for it to be Texas dance hall flooring, you actually have to have a layer of crushed peanut shells. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And I just, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's just funny. It's like, okay, so <laughs> I just sand and seal my flooring subfloor. I get to call it Texas dance hall. And it was plywood, to be fair, not OSB. Okay, so yeah, back to the targets. Yeah, that's where I wanted to go. So heating target, cooling target, so you got extra energy to add a dehumidifier through FIAS. Thank you, FIAS. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so what we've found, you know, we found this on, on our house, but then also on subsequent projects of different scales, right? Like a, you know, 110-unit multifamily, seven-story building, and sort of uh, a duplex that's about two and a half times bigger than my house that we've modeled and, and another house that's a little smaller. Um, all of them, we run into the heating targets uh, really quickly, right? Like the, so with, with Passive House, you get a, Four targets. You get four targets, right? So heating load, cooling load, heating heating demand, cooling demand. And, and it differs, just by the way, for those of you that want a big, quick clarification, like um, the load would be like um, how much power you need to deliver over the course of a year, mm -hmm. and the demand is how quickly you need to deliver mm -hmm. it, right? So. If you never make your car need to accelerate rapidly in the merge lane, then you could go lower on demand. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, per, so per, you know per square foot for a year versus like your your peak condition essentially. Exactly. Um, yeah. What's the what is it when you put your pedal to the metal in your house? Right. It's usually cold here, mm -hmm. and your heat pump's kicking in, or goodness Hot. gracious, your furnace is kicking in. Or, or yeah, exactly. Or you come home after a long trip, it's 115 out, mm -hmm. which is not our design condition. And uh, yeah. you need to get it cold fast, yeah. So yeah. That's, that's demand. And so, so FIA gives you those targets, right? You put in your, your location, the size of your house, the type of project it is. You know, because it doesn't have to be a house, right? Passive house can right. be an office building or a fire station. Um, and so what we've, what we've run into is that essentially we are blowing our cooling targets out of the water. We're hitting them by like 50, 60%, right? So easy to hit the cooling easy target. Easy to hit the cooling target. Even though we're in Texas. Right, and then the heating targets are way, way out of reach. Or, or often it's one or the other. You know, like we'll get close to one and then the other one is like... The demand. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's, it's interesting that it varies. But uh, essentially like in order to, and then we're hitting our site, we also get a, a site, uh, site energy essentially right. Uh, right. A target. And so we can, back out sort of our annual energy uh, efficiency, if you will, um, from that site energy number. And so we can go in and, and change the levers and say, okay, if we use a more efficient ERV or we get a little bit more airtight or we double the insulation in our walls or the roof, like, you know, there's certain certain dials that you have to kind of turn and some are more effective than others. And that's, you know, that, that's sort of the whole game, right? It's like figuring out what are the, the places, the sweet spots for that particular project and where do we want to spend our money, uh, you know, to really cost optimize the enclosure and the, and the right. equipment. And so what's we'll, the goal? Yeah, that is the goal, right? Because we don't want to go so far out that we're throwing money away or putting more carbon into the building that right. we're actually doing more harm than good, you know, mm -hmm. sort of on a global level. Um, and yeah, so what we what we found kind of consistently is that the uh, heating numbers are just tricky. You know, they're they're a little it, like in our opinion, they seem to be a little bit too far out. And like we've been talking with VS about this a lot, right, and they seems to be getting a lot of attention. Yeah, and they're receptive to it. You know, I think, and we're trying to figure it out with them because we're new at this too. So there is like a a question of like, okay, do we know what we're doing, and we want their feedback, right. and then and then also like they're new in our climate and and our. Uh, the way that their uh, sort of their algorithms work, if you will, I don't know that's actually an algorithm. Um, algorithms is, run everything. Yes, mm -hmm. they run the world. The questions I'm answering you are coming from asking you are coming from an algorithm. Uh -huh. I am actually an algorithm. Right, we, we all are. Right? <laughs> yes, it's perfect. 
So, so it just just to put it like in yeah. very stark terms, right? You found that you could do things that you would consider silly, like adding more south-facing glazing mm-hmm. to lower the heating demand, or lowering our solar heat gain coefficient, or lowering, so, yeah, which which yeah, like raising this. Yes. Yes. Making more heat gain. Letting more heat in through the window. That would help you pass. Because it would bring down our heating number, our heating demand, or heating load. But we had so much wiggle room in our cooling numbers that even though it increased those by even more, we're still well within bounds. Right. And even though we have roughly two thirds of the time we're cooling here, Mm -hmm. roughly two thousand, one thousand hours a year. Exactly. And we, you know, we have a couple days below freezing typically and, you know, a hundred days over a hundred. So Mm -hmm. it uh, was, you know, it just wasn't making sense to us essentially. And the other thing was it was actually increasing our site energy. So annually our energy use would go up in order to hit, you know, in order to hit these heating numbers. Um, Wow. I I remember this at the time. This mm -hmm. was like a a heartache in some ways actually for us because here we are advocating for this standard and now we're trying to make it real and we're, mm-hmm. it's, it's confusing set of responses. You know? Yeah. And it's, it's getting resolved now, I want to be very clear. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's just, it's new, right? Like, I mean, I think if you think about it from the standard, right, like Fias is based in Chicago, it came over from Germany, Germany right? And the places where it's been widely adopted are sort of all along yeah, that. Not 30 similar. degrees north. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And so, so it makes sense, right? Because it's been heavily vetted and test driven. Uh, you know, by thousands and thousands of projects in the Pacific Northwest and the Midwest and the yeah. Northeast and in Europe, and it hasn't really down here, so it's new. So it's just we're all figuring it out. So it's not at all like a, um, you know, a critique or anything. Like it's collaborative, and we're, mm-hmm. we're we're working on it, and and so we're just kind of like early adopters and running into early adopter issues. I think is the way we're thinking about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. I think we should probably move on. I mean, it's a really yeah. good discussion. I mean, just to like kind of put a final period at the end of it like there are still ongoing discussions rich fertile discussions with the FIAS technical committee and FIAS is absolutely showing its um, aspirations to get it right in those talks and the FIASCon 2023 I think Right. Yeah. Yeah. Twenty twenty three is coming to Houston. Yeah. Yeah. Super excited. Yeah, Houston's got a lot of work going up over there too. Yeah. They're they're seeing some really cool stuff. They've got a great community. So it's I mean it's coming right. We're just on that that low. Uh, we're yeah. still like on the flat That's flat part of the adoption curve, and yes. we're like we're reaching that knuckle. So it's exciting. Yeah, we're reaching the knuckle, and it's tempting to go away from your house, but let's let's stay. Yeah, yeah. Finish at the house, like because there were two things that happened on the house, but because. Talking about Fias coming in, so mm-hmm. I really want to go there too. Yeah. Um, hitting the air, the air leakage target. Yeah. And the second <laughs> one was your experience during snowpocalypse living in the house. Definitely. And I guess the tours too, but the tours relate to the air leakage. So tell us a little bit about how incredibly simple it was to hit the air leakage target with this, <laughs> with this remodel. I, I mean, basically, I just I, we just asked our builder to do it, and he did it. So. Okay. <laughs> Next topic. That yeah. No, no, so. Uh, Okay, so in Texas, in Austin, I guess in Austin, not in Texas, uh, our code air leakage is 5 ACH50, which is incredibly leaky for a code minimum. So basically, like, as soon as you get to the county north of us, it goes, you know, we change climate zones, and then it goes to 3. Roughly half. Yeah, right, and that's where it is basically until you get to Canada, right? So at 3, you have to try, right? At 5, you don't really have to try. So it's... It's really just an industry thing here where it's like 
we don't really pay attention to it, you know? And that's not to say nobody pays attention to it. Like, we know our friends through the Build Show and that, that whole community are really chasing some tight numbers and doing yeah, incredible absolutely. things. Um, but sort of as a the broader uh, industry is just not really aware of, like, air tightness as a thing that they need to look out for or build for or test or, uh, you know, price, you know? So it's... Gets, it gets uh, interesting when, yeah, it when gets you have to actually build the house that, you know, it's just a little number in the spec, <laughs> but it's a, not a little number when you're building it. And now your number was very little. So we, okay, so the house, we tested it. We borrowed uh, y'all's uh, blower door and tested it before demo, and we blew a 16 ACH. <laughs> so pretty, pretty leaky. <laughs> That's worse than mine. Yeah, it was pretty leaky. It was, you know, it was fun. We had, like, the floor camera, so you could see, like, the, it, and we did it on kind of a fall day when it was chilly out, but it was warm in the house. And uh, you could see the, the heat coming in through the, um, or the cold coming in, the cold coming in through like the outlets and the fan and everything, just sort of everywhere up through the floorboards. We had no subfloor, um, so so the zip. You know, I think the the biggest thing for with passive house is just like detailing, right? Like making your enclosure as simple as it can be, right? Like I think there's a you look around at a lot of homes and it seems like there's a uh, penchant to like. Make the planes, yeah, just because yeah, you want to, like, yeah, and that every one of those is not only a place for air leakage but also water leakage and it adds cost and dry, you know, it's a place where mistakes are going to happen much more than in a a field. Um, so you know, having a simple volume, having simple details, um, you know, having a builder who's careful and is paying attention on board, so we, we got down to about one ACH, so still like very tight, you know, uh, very tight for our market. And uh, for- The target was? Uh, so point six was the old passive house target. It's now a CFM per envelope, so it's not quite analogous, but mm-hmm. just keep talking in the air changes per hour. So, so point six ACH right. 50. So, so we're still like- Halfway to go. Yeah, halfway to go. And so uh, our Blake Smith with a clean tag, our builder, um, you know, we had the blower door over there and we're just like running it for like a week and he was just crawling around with Pookie and, <laughs> and like trying to feel for leaks and we did a big smoke test as a happy hour, which was really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, we got the biggest uh, fog machine we could find from rock and roll rentals. <laughs> Filled the house up with smoke, bought a bunch of beer, had people over, positively pressurized the house and saw, saw where the leaks were. Um, I remember every time somebody new came in, the door would slam behind them. Yeah. Just... <laughs> <laughs> we were all walking around in this like haunted house. Yeah. It was fun. Um, so yes, and we found some big leaks through that, you know, like kind of hidden framing chases at a, at a flat roof corner. Um, a couple windows where that hadn't, the interior perimeter seal hadn't been completed on all four sides. Um, but anyway, he, he was still kind of chasing his tail and he called me up and was just like, Okay, I need some help. Uh, let's call Aero Barrier. And so we knew Sean Harris to the rescue. Yeah, Sean Harris to the rescue. So we knew about Aero Barrier. We had, you know, we know Sean through through y'all. He's a, a good friend, and you know, has worked on a lot of indoor air quality issues for clients of ours, and yeah. also like at the house we were renting during construction. And oh my goodness. Yeah, um, we. So yeah, so he came over. We bought, you know, five hundred dollars worth of Franklin's brisket. Ooh. And uh, had a happy hour, and he aero barriered the house down to like 0.3. So he, you know, redoubled past the the target that we were trying to hit. 
Um, which is pretty cool. And you helped him though by getting close to begin with. Yeah, exactly. I guess he would have been there a lot longer. The cost and his time. Mm-hmm. For sure. So it's and I think there's like a you know we want to lean on the enclosure first, right? Like I don't think Aero Barrier is is magic and wonderful, and we advocate for it and are putting it as a line item in all of our projects now. Wow. So um, even your multifamily. We are. It doesn't always make it into the multifamily. <laughs> so far, it hasn't made it into a multifamily, <laughs> um, to be fair. We, we're, we're trying, though. Um, All right. Well, maybe we'll but, follow that tangent. Maybe not. Maybe yeah, yeah, Like a, a series of these. You know? For sure. Yeah, I'm just done. Okay, so your aerobarium, you got it down to point three. There's also mm-hmm. some give back that happens because aerobarium, they right. tape a lot of the windows and mm-hmm. doors. And, yeah. And the give back, we were still good? We were still, so yeah, we ended up at like point, point five. I think, awesome. was our final... Uh, blower door score so still still really really super tight that's um, awesome alright I want to talk about two more quick things one, one is uh, you know you mentioned simple volumes simple connections you know, making the details as straightforward as possible was that on your mind when you were talking with um, Hugh and Blair from HJR during the design it like, was let's keep these very simple it was and I think it was, and, and it was and that was also part of why we hired them you know like i knew it was gonna be wanted to you know we knew we wanted to have passive house and so i knew that i needed that kind of like counterpoint and so it was like we ended up so when we bought the house about three months later a neighbor took a tree down that all of a sudden gave us a skyline view but not from anywhere in the house right and it was like we we just we could see it when we were out in the backyard if you stood on a picnic table <laughs> but we couldn't see it from inside Don't the house that no there was one little window over the toilet so it was my pee view and i was the only one who got to, to have the view so uh so when we did the work we're you know it was like adrian and here were like we have to open up to downtown and like create this kind of treehouse effect and like it's just it's the, there's no way not to and i was yeah, like can't we just do some like slot windows like we can't do a whole glass wall it's going to be you know below our sort of glazing budget and, and oh right you know because you've already you've already hit the targets or, or was this pre-targets this was like i mean a, i had the energy model running and so um and they're like no we have to we'll just we'll make it work and so i was like okay so then we reduced some glazing elsewhere and then uh you know went with this new marvin modern window that had pretty mm-hmm. a, uh, pretty good uh u values and we made it work and uh, you know but it was like it was one of those things where there's like a push-pull between the different priorities of the project, right? Like that's the thing that is such a wow factor and, and both from like a design from the exterior but also the interior, like connection to nature, connection to downtown and just like feeling and daylight um, that, uh, you know, it was just like, okay, we need to make it work, right? Like we, you can't, you can't make the house energy efficient at the detriment of the, um, experience of the house and making it lovely and beautiful because then nobody's going to want to do it right yeah and i I mean i think that is maybe like a bigger point around all this that like i think that we're uh like right now there's so much talk around like climate change and like sacrifice right and like you know what we need to do to to make things better and like it it seems it's framed as like a um you, give up something. you have to give up something right it's detrimental right and i think that there is a big missing part of that conversation that's oh, yeah. like okay we're making this house more efficient and also we get better indoor air quality we it's more comfortable it's quieter it's more resilient we can talk about the the storms shortly it's more durable and it's really not 
that much harder, you know? It was yeah. like a little bit more expensive, but not much. It was definitely like a learning curve. It took you know? longer. And it took longer, but it was also the first one we did, you know? Yeah. So there's, it's gonna be a learning curve for anything. Yeah, so and that was the, the second film. Yeah. No, I just think just, there's like, it's a joy. It's like, there's this like joyful, like exactly. learning experience in, in this whole thing. That's like, there's the outer expression of a project like that. And then there's the inner expression, mm-hmm. which is where values and meaning and purpose live in us. And we tend to discount that as a society. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also tend to discount air generally. Like, um, I'm actually sensitive to language because like, for instance, the word just. Mm-hmm. A lot of times a negative decision is made precluded by you know the word just right? oh well, let's just do a hit code well, let's just do a normal house mm-hmm. yeah, like I'm sure you and Adrian just thought about that a few times <laughs> but um, and then you have like the, the reality of you and Sean Harris and um, you know your builder just really committing to this and, like making it better but um, on language these things indoor air quality it's kind of mm-hmm. like a sick building syndrome where Like, I'm really big on indoor air quality. I think it's very important. (laughs) We're very intimate with our air. But really, when you say indoor air quality, like, the air is of better quality for the people to breathe it. And when you talk about breathing it, it's like, even that doesn't quite... For you to take it through your lungs into every tissue and cell of your body many times every minute, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this this is the reality of our situation right now, in fact, you and I. There's an ERV in this room, and... HEPA filter over there, um, is that people don't realize their relationship with air and you don't have to have, I mean, how intimate it is. Mm-hmm. And it rarely gets curated and arranged like other materials that architects curate and arrange. And yet, um, it's about health. I mean, you don't have to have like a complicated argument. It's going in and out of your body mm-hmm. many times a minute. And if it has bad things in it, it makes you unhealthy. You didn't have to resort to trickery or some complex mm-hmm. language, but you can. Let's talk about PM two point five and right. Yeah, right. Like the indoor air quality is almost. It's it's like oh, it's this other thing over there that we can like improve or it's bad or whatever. But it's it's a it's over there, right? And it's not like we're not. So it's divorced from us, right? We're not talking <laughs> about like oh, we make our homes airtight because. You sleep better because your CO2 levels are lower right. and your allergens aren't there and your kids don't have allergies because you're not getting all the pollen and, and dust from the highway inside and the, the you, can't, you can't hear the trains going by because yeah. it's quieter. It's Yeah, it's like the... You forget all, all the other Right, sides. all these, or indoor environmental quality, which, you know, speaks to like sound reduction and uh, and light quality and things like that but there's still it still feels divorced from ourselves and and from the actual like effects that we feel and our joy of seeing light patterns on the walls or just feeling cool and comfortable in mm-hmm. your own space and yeah fundamentally feeling sheltered i am sheltered mm-hmm. by this structure yeah it there's is, like a, it is here to serve me feeling of like solidness and safety right mm-hmm. okay so the other one speaking of safety now like we all down here in austin went through a um, I mean, many people died, actually. We went through mm-hmm. a very deep uh, cold snap, unexpected. And you found yourself in this house. Come, any comments on that? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, yeah, so many people died, some from the cold. A lot of people died because of carbon monoxide poisoning, right? From either trying to heat their homes from their gas ranges or probably, I, mean, I think it was mostly from cars, but there were definitely some from uh, gas ranges. Is yeah, it's scary, right? Um, we we were in our home for about a year prior to that, 
uh, our house, the, our neighbor's house next door was essentially the way ours was before construction. And it was below freezing within 12 hours. And then like, you know, I mean, we were, we were seeing like single digit, you know, pretty close to zero days here, which is very cold, you know, unheard of cold for, yeah. for here. Um, you know, we usually get like a couple days with where it touches, 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 yeah, 30, 20, yeah. Um, and, and so, right, so we lost power for three days. Uh, our house got cooler and colder and colder, but bottomed out at 47, Wow! you know, after the, uh, three days without power. So it was not comfortable in our house, <laughs> right? Our, our uh, two-year-old was like, I don't want to wear three jackets anymore. <laughs> and he was not, not stoked. And, uh, you know, we, our, our CO2 got pretty high yeah. in our bedroom because the ERV wasn't on and we were packed in with all three of us and our dog and one room. window. No, no, <laughs> no. But then when we, in the morning we got up, it was, it was really stuffy. It was like being on an airplane, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, and we opened the door and the rest of the house was sort of at, at a normal level. Uh, but yeah, it was, there was like a real passive survivability thing there. Um, You've lived it, yeah. Yeah. And, and so many, like every house on the blocks, uh, gas electric or sorry gas hot water heater that was on the outside of their house exploded you know because it still had water in it and the pilot went out or we had one neighbor who had put his up in his attic so that that wouldn't happen and then his blew up oh god and then it, they had to get the entire house because they had just some water pouring through the house for four days afterwards because they were out of town oh my gosh and you know it's interesting there's there is a lot a fair amount of um research around passive survivability in cold weather right because you know like we, we talk about sort of the all of this is, you know, like our culture, I guess, is kind of cold climate biased, right? Mm-hmm. Like our engineering rules and building and markets and everything are right. cold climate biased. And that's fine. It just is, you know, where the think tanks are and everything. Um, but there, there hasn't been a ton of hot weather passive survivability uh, studies here. And so, so we worked with a professor at UT and UT has a house up at the Pickle Research Center that's a code-built house that they have control over. So we put, uh, or they put data monitors, little, little loggers in that house and in our house. And then our house, so this was during construction, so our house still didn't have AC on, right? So it's a you know tight envelope, had its, everything set up, right. was dried in, but was just not uh, you know, on and running yet. So turn both house, so they turn the other house off. Within 12 hours, the other house is hotter than our house is. Right, our house had never had AC, and it's like coasting between like 83 and 85, kind of like over the course of two or three days when it was like 105 outside. The other house within 12 hours is like 87, and then it got at night it dipped down below ours, and then during the next day, their house, the pickle house, was up at 97 degrees. Wow. And our house was still at 85, and so 24 hours, or I guess 36 hours from turning it off, that house is already like unlivable. Um, whereas our house, which was just an enclosure at that, at right, that point, just was box. much, much more uh, yeah. comfortable. So this is real. I mean, the enclosure is the gift that keeps on giving mm-hmm. or not, right? Mm-hmm. And you have a choice. You have one time where you have the opportunity right. to do that. And um, I think that's pretty clear now. Generally speaking, if you're on your game in the AEC industry, you know not that code is literally the worst you can do. I mean, it's, it's a cliche now. Just two quick like underscores. One is gas ranges um, in this era of electrification, mm-hmm. where uh, let's just be very clear that from a from a carbon emission standpoint, the gas range is only three percent. Like ninety seven percent is space heating and domestic hot water production. So 
no one is going to say to you, oh, you shouldn't use, I guess some people do, but you, you know, the reason you shouldn't use a gas range is for your health. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and maybe like the subtle underlying reason is because if that's the last gas appliance in your house, by not switching that over, you still ask the entire gas production and delivery system, mm-hmm. the piping that's leaking, to exist. Yeah. Right? And the methane leaks that are coming from there are just profound, like profoundly impactful. Um, yeah, but really it's about health, right? So yeah, that's the reason. I heard it described as the elephant's nose under the tent. Right? There you go. Yeah, because it's like, it, it, I mean, it's literally something that the natural gas industry is hiring influencers to like, look at my toasted tortilla and I had to do it on a gas range and so I love my gas range, right? Pl- playing to that emotion because nobody cares if they have hot water where it comes from or that yeah. their house is comfortable where that comes from but like I'm gas sure ranges... i toasted tortilla on an induction. Oh, definitely. Oh, <laughs> you, can make it, you can make one on a candle. <laughs> right, you're gonna get a torch. We, our office is like we're. A little, I mean, it's right. Like we're, you know, we're talking, have these conversations with clients who are coming in and just wanting to build a house, and we're trying to bring their, you know, their body and their family's body and their health into it. And so we're a little evangelical about the induction ranges, but we all have them in our office too. Yeah. It's like, the, I think everybody in the office who has purchased a range since they've been there. And we love them. It's so it's like mm-hmm. so much faster than gas. It's so much easier to clean. It's just a countertop when it's not on, right? And like, there's no, yeah. you know, uh, there's so many good reasons. So many good reasons. Adherence to tradition and in-group loyalty are mm-hmm. holding us back. And you're actually you're reminding me of I think it's Amory Lovins that talks about people want a warm house and a cold beer, and they don't. <laughs> they're agnostic on the technology that's mm-hmm. in between. Who's not agnostic? the builders and the installing contractors, mm. right? Because there's systems there that they've rehearsed and production and supply of, you know, these resources. And of course, the influential affluent gas industry is not going to hasten its own transition, mm-hmm. but it is inexorably happening. I think we should we should switch to the, to the architecture side of things. Because one of the things we're doing right now is we're talking ahead of the AIA Homes Tour, right? So this is yeah. AIA Austin having their Homes Tour which in some ways is um, pragmatic of them. It's a fundraising opportunity. It's a marketing opportunity for the expression of the power of an influence of architects and architecture in society. And in another way, it is like, um, it's more subtle because your house on the tour is showing, look what architects can advocate for, right? Like, um, I was thinking about how many times uh, gosh, I want to be careful how I say this, right? Like, you could argue, well, it's not the chef's responsibility to um, curate the quality of the materials they put into their meals, right? They're just going to cook something that tastes good. That's what society ultimately wants, right? Mm-hmm. Society just wants food that tastes good, right? We just want a warm house and a cold beer. But then you think about the food industry, and largely speaking, it is very, very normal yeah. for society to pay attention to the quality of the ingredients that go into their food, and yet. Um, you could imagine architects receiving a client with like, I want this house of this size with this uh, visual aesthetic of a lot of glazing and you know, in this climate here where it's very hot and very humid, do architects ever say, you know, that's not really an appropriate architectural expression in this climate. I'm going to try to use my role power in society. Mm-hmm. I feel a little concerned about talking this right now, but I'm going to try to use my role in society to influence you, right? I'm the architect. I'm the expert here. And you're the client. I know what you want. You want warmth and 
shelter and clean air and um, I kind of lost my question all in there but do you know how yeah. your past got chosen or how that gets or tell me your thoughts yeah, yeah. I mean we can, yeah, we can talk about the process but I think there's yeah there's a lot there to unpack right I think there, yeah. there is a uh, so there's there's two other houses on the tour that are also architect owner and all three of us have solar panels and are you know net zero or close so I think you can see that there's like our industry as a whole or, or you know like especially like people coming up right now are like very passionate about this stuff and, and driving it forward and, and advocating for it right because it's like there's a level of advocacy there with the clients that like this is about more than just like the square footage of the house and like the, the photos like you are living in this thing with your family and it's a machine and it will affect your health mm -hmm. and, and know, resilience, resiliency way, yeah right exactly like how comfortable you're going to be in an outage or an extreme weather. And how comfortable you're going to be mentally, emotionally, even considering the prospect of an outage. Where does that get factored in? Right, yeah, just your, your basal stress levels. Yeah. Yeah, right. So we... It's, it's a good segue. Like our, so our firm, you know, recently... Uh, you know, decided that this is what we're going to do for single-family homes. Like we, from now on, are going to market and exclusively do passive house, healthy homes. Like looking really closely at all the materials going in, working with our interior designers either in-house or, or if we work with you know my wife uh, Adrian and her firm or another firm, um, having some you know a lot of feedback on, on any materials requirements. You know, working with y'all on the systems, saying okay, positive energy has to be involved on, on every home. That's not like an optional thing as to whether or not this is, you know, designed by the person installing it. Like we need to have this up front so that health and quality and comfort can be a part of it. Um, and with an eye towards like, okay, how do we? So right now we're looking at a lot of uh, embodied carbon tools and embodied carbon analysis, and so we're Excellent. you know trying to figure out how quickly we can get to say to saying confidently like every home we build is going to be net zero operational energy or positive and net zero or positive carbon. Uh, yeah, so we're, awesome. we're not there yet, but that is yeah, our, you know, like near-term goal for, for the firm. And, and then we do a lot of uh, commercial and multifamily work. And so we're already using all these lessons learned and the woofy passive house modeling that we're doing on all these single family homes and tacking that on as, a, as something that we're doing to influence our design on our multifamily and our commercial work and, and tracking up the material sourcing and, and you know, our kind of green spec. And so we can use it as kind of like a, a playground and, mm -hmm. and then uh, scale jump with it pretty easily. Um, so it's been, it's exciting. You know, it's it, super exciting. I actually just want to go back and like underscore what you said at the beginning of that which is that you as a firm or Forgecraft as a firm mm -hmm. you and S Scott and Rommel and other and John, John yeah John, John yeah you have made a bold decision at, at, at an important time and a societal inflection point to commit to doing passive houses mm -hmm. um, and you're, you're saying that what you learn doing single-family passive houses like in that little sandbox helps you scale jump mm -hmm. and apply it and speak with confidence and you as an owner can speak with confidence. You know, yeah. This is what I yeah. would do. Look, this is what I did. It's just, as we know, it's the best uh, best path to uh, building, uh, you know, the best house we know how, you know, from in a cost-optimized way that is resilient and healthy and durable and energy efficient and good for our planet. And so we're, you know, at a point where that's what we want to do. And, that, and we're just going to say, we are saying that that is what we're doing now. And... Uh, it's exciting. It's a little scary, yeah. you know. Uh, you know, we're sort of like, if you build it, they will come. At this point, 
um, but we're we're planting that flag and it's kind of launching it with the home store. So yeah, hopefully and they will. Yeah, I mean, I think positive energy was a little out in that direction a little too early, and now mm -hmm. I feel like it's much more mainstream. Um, there is something ineffable and yet uh, incontrovertible. Like you can't argue that you feel better living your values, mm -hmm. come what may. Yeah, and right. and yet we we like to pretend as a society that. That, that doesn't matter like it's, it's all it's as though someone has like a video camera and is watching us like have you seen me looking awesome in my <laughs> visually awesome house and like okay this is getting you know those of you listening know i can go this direction very easily but like what is a good life right it's a good emotional life and what makes mm -hmm. good emotions it means living your values like it's pretty simple <laughs> yeah well i mean i think that's like an interesting point right with there's within this this realm right there is a lot of uh like not in housing, but but across the field, there is a lot of uh, like signaling and and uh, people who make decisions and will pay a premium for the health of their family and the health of the planet, right? Like early adopters for EVs and organic food and you know like lifestyle. This kind of like lifestyle, right? Where it's like yeah. a mindful lifestyle that cares about the health of, of you and your family and, and the outward health of the planet and the community around us, but there is no nothing in, in the industry that we play in, right, other than like hiring you, you guys, yeah. uh, that signals that. There's nothing in, when you go to buy a house on the real estate listings, it says this is certified passive house or a healthy house or what the blower door score is even for how airtight it is or does it have ventilation or dehumidifier or right. anything like that, right? And like. So we're hoping to, to change that, you know, and th that is to say in this market, right? Because I do know that if you go to Portland, there are single family home developments that are being uh, marketed and built as passive houses because they're resilient, right? And because they have good indoor air quality. And because if there's a wildfire, they have HEPA filtration built into their HVAC system. Uh, it's just not something that's really happened down here quite yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, it's it seems like we're in the same society with a similar set of underlying value preference systems. So it's it's just a matter of time. Um, yeah, I like the idea of like where is the um, organic food farmers market in the building industry? Right? Yeah. And, and I think what it's doing right now, actually, we've used the expression Miguel and I talking about shovels, which is like the the mainstream single family, even multifamily construction industry. Imagine them like a, a group of hardworking, dedicated people looking at a giant pile of dirt that needs to get loaded into a truck or something. And they're all like, should I use a hickory handle shovel? Should I use a flat bottom shovel? This is, this is talking about everything, mm -hmm. talking about carbon emissions, talking about embodied carbon and ERBs. And ultimately, what matters is just pick up a shovel, get to work. Like, yeah. yes, you have to learn it. Yes, you have to think about it. But... You know, as you found, there are consultants and there's materials and you know, construction teams. You can make this happen. It's not mm -hmm. like some uh, unachievable goal. It's not, and we're yeah, we're learning as we go. And, yeah. and and like you said, like with our with our house, it was that was part of the fun was like creating community around it and like leaning on, you know, some of our commercial envelope consultants to help with detailing because yeah. they're they're friends and this is what they do on big you know, hundred million dollar projects yeah. and working with you guys on. 
running down rabbit holes. We went through this whole thing on uh, whether or not we should put in uh, a bath pan. Oh yeah, you know, because our, our local yes, local uh, green building code said that we had to have a bath pan with a humidistat or a timer. And we said, well, we've got an ERV and a dehumidifier, <laughs> so we don't really need to do that. I said, well, well, yes, you do, and said, no, we don't. And so we went back and forth, and you know, brought in uh, people from Mitsubishi or Stoller. Analysis, doing a lot of math. Yeah, didn't help. No, and they, <laughs> so, but then, then on this other project that is just breaking ground right now, they let us do it. So it's mm -hmm. like, so it did help. So, just took yeah, a project or two. Yeah, so we're we're getting there, and uh, it, you know, it's it's. Uh, can be a headache sometimes running down all those rabbit holes when you're trying to do other things but mm -hmm. it's also fun and you learn a lot and you create community and and we're all learning together and, and i think we know that there there are better outcomes and so it's just a matter of saying we're going to get there and then getting there yep. you know and you're going to need help 100 percent, yeah there's just all these systems of systems of systems like in fact i realized as you were saying we did not discuss the mechanical system Mm -hmm. It's been on other podcasts, right? <laughs> it's got good ducting, good system, you know, heating and cooling, or of course a heat pump. I, I'm not going to go through it, but um, I really think that that's a good place to leave it. Mm -hmm. Do you have any final comments, final thoughts? Uh, no, I mean I think that was that was great. We, I guess, the, just reiterating like the the kind of community aspect of this, and then mm -hmm. like it's just planting a flag further than you can reach and then gathering the group of people who can help you reach it. Beautiful. Great way to end it. Thanks for trying. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. And thank you all for listening.